Welcome to the Humanizing Work Show podcast, where we dig into topics large and small related to our mission, making work more fit for humans and all of us humans more capable of doing great work. You can learn more about humanizing work and the Humanizing Work Company at humanizingwork.com. The most viral video I've ever created was an accident. In 2014, I read a book by Frederic Laloux called Reinventing Organizations. And I found the ideas in the book really interesting. It was chock full of inspiring stories of organizations taking really interesting and, to me, novel approaches to leadership, structures, culture. And I've always been a big believer in the advice that if you really want to understand something, you should teach it. But at the time, I couldn't figure out any context where somebody might invite me to teach about this model. So I decided instead to just make an explainer video about it. One of these kind of whiteboard hand animation videos, and I learned a new tool to do it. It was really fun. So I created this explanation of the model that Lalu describes in his book, and I posted it on a Vimeo site that we had at the time because, you know, Vimeo was for business. This was my thinking, and, and embedded that video in a blog post uh, at our company then, Agile for All. And then I posted a link to that site on Facebook, I think, and tagged Frederick Lalu, the author. Lalu ended up sharing the post, and it started to go a little bit viral, but the problem was that since it was just embedded on this site, you couldn't access the video directly. And so another consultant asked me, hey, would it be okay if we add that video to our YouTube channel? That way more people can access it. And I thought, hey, great, that probably will help more people see it. And it turns out that that YouTube video posted on that consulting company's YouTube channel now has well over 250,000 views. And the final overview that I use in that video as I illustrate it is you can find it all over the web as an illustration of Lalu's model. So after creating the video, people started asking me more and more about the model, like where it came from and how it applies. And I really didn't know a lot of history about the model that Lalu was using, so I started researching it. And I learned that the original source of that model came from a psychologist named Claire Graves, who was researching adult stage development in the 1950s and 60s. And that two of his grad students, Don Beck and Christopher Cowan, had written a book about the model where they describe it called Spiral Dynamics. And that's where it first inherited the color scheme associated with it, if you're familiar with the color scheme. And Beck used this model in a lot of cool ways to help people like, for example, Nelson Mandela. Beck was a consultant for Mandela in South Africa as he tried to help bridge different cultures, different value sets when he became the leader of South Africa. And then finally, Ken Wilbur, who was a protege of Don Beck at the time, uh, later modified the model a bit. And then that version is what Lalu used as his original source. So there's been a lot of years since then. And as I've learned more about the model and applied it in different ways and, and actually taught it, there are a few things that became clear to me about the model. First of all, there are some slippery aspects of the research around the model, especially as it applies to large trends in organizations and cultures. The version Lalu used is different from some of the earlier research, uh, particularly in what he describes as teal organizations, where people more familiar with the original versions of those models would point out that those organizations are probably more like high green organizations. And all of those caveats aside, it was still really useful to me even if not fully accurate or validated, because it gave me a better way to understand what might be driving any one individual and how those different values can really shape an organizational culture. It also helped me understand that a lot of the conflicts that I noticed in organizations, in politics, and even in individual relationships 
were not so much about the thing that people were arguing about as it was about a core difference in their values. So those were all useful parts of the model to me, and, and I still use it as a lens that I see things through. Now, I was recently asked to give a keynote speech at a big trade conference in Africa, and the conference organizers learned about me through that original video. And they asked me to give a talk that was kind of similar to that. And this gave me a chance to revisit how I would talk about the key points of this today versus how I talked about the model eight years ago. So in this video, I'm going to give you the keynote as I'll deliver it at that conference. And then Richard and I will have a brief chat about our experience with the model, since he and I have pretty different reactions as far as its usefulness goes. I think it'll be interesting to explore how two people like Richard and I that work really closely together and are really aligned on much of our thinking can still disagree about fundamental mental models. And that doesn't hurt us. In fact, it probably helps us that we have different perspectives on certain things. So here comes the video. Much of the storytelling about great business leaders paints a picture of hard driving geniuses ruthlessly working towards growing their businesses at all costs. I co-founded the Humanizing Work Company to explore a new hypothesis, that as work becomes increasingly complex, taking a human-centric approach does not conflict with delivering great business results. In fact, I believe we are seeing more and more evidence that humanizing our work is the key to unlocking human ingenuity at scale to address the increasingly complex, interconnected problems we face in this world. This new hypothesis, if true, carries with it a mandate to change our fundamental beliefs about how to best structure and lead our organizations. To learn more about similar shifts in the fundamental structures of organizations, I studied the history of how humans organize over many centuries. And I was fascinated to discover that over the last several millennia, there have been four primary evolutions of how we organize our work. Each of these mental models evolved to meet the most pressing demands of their day. Today, we are seeing early evidence of a fifth evolution, a new mental model that better meets the needs of our connected, rapidly changing world. I'm excited to share these models with you, as well as how the fifth evolution gives us new and exciting options to make work more fit for all of us humans living in today's world, and all of us more capable of doing great, meaningful work. Let's start with the oldest model that still has some influence in today's organizations. We'll call this model Powerful Self. This model evolved thousands of years ago as powerful individuals protected their homelands, then began venturing out to increase their people's capability to benefit from additional lands, flocks, herds, and crops. I'll share a few quotes that illustrate the viewpoint of this system as well as all of the other systems. As I share these quotes, it's important to remember two things. First, most individuals aren't completely fixed in any one system. We all respond to the life conditions we're in, which change depending on the day and the context. And second, each system has both gifts and costs. They're fit for purpose for different contexts. So the quotes I'll share aren't intended to identify the individual as a representative of that system. Instead, the quotes themselves illustrate the primary mental model of the system. With that said, the first quote to illustrate the powerful self model comes from the boxer Muhammad Ali, who said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. And the second quote from a business leader, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, who said, if any of my competitors were drowning, I'd stick a hose in their mouth and turn on the water. This is rat eat rat, dog eat dog. These two quotes illustrate the belief that in the face of scarcity, we can only ensure safety and success through being more powerful than our perceived opponents. The powerful self is an individually focused model. 
Like each mental model, there are gifts and costs to the powerful self system. Organizations adhering to the powerful self have gifts of courage, speed, and a no-nonsense direct approach. The costs of the powerful self model include a culture of fear of crossing the powerful person, the chaotic environment that can result from trying to guess the whims of that powerful person, and the unfairness that results when the only definition of being right is related to the power of the individual, the might makes right idea. In organizations dominated by this approach, people feel threatened by the unpredictability of excessive power and the survival of the fittest mindset. Historically, the next mental model always evolves to try to address the costs of the previous model. In this example, people began to address the costs of the powerful self model by establishing governance, setting boundaries that everyone must follow regardless of their power, and aligning around overarching sources of truth that supersede any one individual. The next model that evolved we'll call the stable order model. This model evolved hundreds of years ago as governments, religious institutions, and other organizations created stable structures, processes, and beliefs based on some core guiding absolute truth. For governments, the source of truth was some chartering document like a constitution. For religious institutions, the absolute truth was captured in holy writings like scripture. For other organizations, absolute truth is made up of the written and unwritten codes and process documents. These single sources of truth created stability. They allowed organizations to persist through changes of leadership, which almost never happened under the old powerful self system. To balance the individual focus of the powerful self model, the stable order system is about creating a collective good. A few quotes that exemplify the ethos of the stable order system are from Catherine the Great. The equality of the citizens consists in that they should all be subject to the same laws. And from Dwight D. Eisenhower, who said, the world no longer has a choice between force and law. If civilization is to survive, it must choose the rule of law. Now, while most world religions are good examples of this organizational viewpoint, I intentionally avoided quotes from religious leaders here, since that would tend to be divisive. But if you practice or study any religion, you can probably quickly locate or even recite quotes that exemplify the importance of following the absolute truth and laws of that religion. The stable order system has gifts of sacrificing self for the greater good of the group, taking a long view related to the purpose and goals of the organization, and creating predictability. In organizations dominated by the stable order model, the costs include its restrictive nature, a strong judgment of anyone not adhering to the truth, which shows up both within the group and as conflict between groups that have different beliefs about the one right way, and slow and frustrating bureaucracy. Under these conditions, people can feel stifled, especially those that are ostracized for not following the one right way. Even those that might adhere to those rules might still have individual ideas for how to improve and innovate at a much faster pace than the stable order system is comfortable with. The next mental model evolved to address these costs, and we'll call it strive to achieve. The strive to achieve system is the most common mental model today. It began to take hold a few hundred years ago, and it's the driving force behind the scientific revolution, meritocratic systems of government, the massive technological breakthroughs of this century, and a rapid increase in the average prosperity of the vast majority of humans on Earth today. 
Again, we see the oscillation back from the collective values of the stable order system towards an individual focus. A few quotes that summarize the viewpoint of the strive to achieve model. First, from Jamshedji Tata, who said, What advances a nation or a community is not so much to prop up the weakest and most helpless members, but to lift up the best and the most gifted so as to make them of the greatest service to the country. And from Louis Pasteur, who said, Science is the highest personification of a nation because the nation that wins will be the one which carries furthest the works of thought and intelligence. Notice the focus on individual merit, on intelligence and achievement in these quotes. The strive to achieve system has gifts of inventiveness, which we see in new systems of government and advances in science and technology. Empiricism, meaning a focus on learning and improvement through experimentation and observation. And meritocracy, the idea that individuals with merit can succeed according to that merit, regardless of their social standing. In organizations dominated by the strive to achieve model, the costs include its tendency to exploit both resources and people, its focus on materialistic gains as the primary evidence of worth, and its tendency to manipulate other systems for its own benefit. Under these conditions, people often end up unfulfilled, regretting the prioritization of work and achievement over family, friends, and social good. The strive to achieve approach as an individualistic model strongly believes that anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps with enough talent and hard work, sometimes ignoring the inequitable circumstances that prevent many people from ever doing that. The next mental model evolved to address these costs. The fairness and connection mental model began to grow around the 1960s as the strive to achieve model was reaching its peak and more people recognized that material wealth alone is not enough to live a satisfying life. Additionally, more and more people were speaking out against the inequalities of racism, sexism, and discrimination in all of its forms. Fairness and connection systems challenge the idea that everything that matters can be described or understood through reason, measurement, and quantification. In response to the hard-driving exploitation of the strive-to-achieve system, people began seeking for emotional, social, and environmental health. Again, we see the oscillation back from the individualistic values of the strive-to-achieve system towards a more collective focus. A few quotes that summarize the viewpoints of this system. We'll share two that are more broad illustrations and then two that are reflections of the fairness and connection viewpoint in a business context. The first quote from Martin Luther King. A famous quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And from Eckhart Tolle, you find peace not by rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who you are at the deepest level. These two quotes illustrate the importance in the fairness and connection system of equality and looking within for meaning. Two examples from a business context are, first, Dan Price, who is the CEO of a company called Gravity Payments. Price read some research that showed that happiness increased with income, but only up to a certain point. And then additional income beyond that point provided no additional increase in happiness. In the U.S., the research showed that that number was somewhere around 70,000 USD per year. While many people at his company made that much, many others, particularly those in more entry-level positions, did not. So Dan decided to make $70,000 per year the new minimum wage at the company and to take a personal pay cut in order to cover the additional costs of bringing everyone's salary up to that minimum level. 
The next example is from Charlie Kim, the CEO of a company called Next Jump. And Charlie Kim made the decision not to fire anyone at the company. He said, we don't fire anyone. If they're not working out, we'll train them or we'll pay them until they find a new job. Notice here the focus on fairness and human connection in a business context. The fairness and connection system has gifts of collaboration, inclusivity, and idealism. And in organizations dominated by the fairness and connection system, the costs can include struggling to make decisions due to the desire to consider everyone's needs and opinions, an avoidance of conflict, since conflict threatens that need for connection. This avoidance of conflict often leads to a tolerance of harmful behavior in fairness and connection systems where individuals with a powerful self or a strive to achieve viewpoint can manipulate the system to meet their goals. In fairness and connection systems, people will speak out against bad behavior, but they will often struggle to find satisfactory solutions or preventions for harmful behavior. There's also a cost related to the focus on trying not to offend anyone being politically correct. While there is a real and important gift above in inclusivity, it can turn into a cost when we search for potential offenses in a never-ending quest to be more correct. For example, as I got feedback on early drafts of this talk, several people pointed out that the quotes I shared were all from white American or European men. I considered this criticism to be very fair, so I began a period of focused research to uncover quotes from a more diverse set of voices. This helped me learn about leaders I was less familiar with. And I'm really grateful that there is a broader representation of the beautifully diverse human population. But is it inclusive enough? What about the fact that almost all of the quotes are still from men, still primarily Western focused? What about additional viewpoints that I haven't considered here? What nationalities have I left out? What other microaggressions am I making by who I've included and who I've by default excluded? I know that with more work, I could do a better job, but how might I know if I've done enough? This helps illustrate the potential cost of the fairness and connection system where the important need for diversity can feel like an unwinnable quest. If right now your blood is beginning to boil just a little bit that I essentially gave up on sourcing even more diverse quotes, I understand and I agree. In fact, I welcome any suggestions you might have on additional more diverse quote sources. Let's zoom out to look at how these four viewpoints work together as a system. The four systems all find fault with each other in one way or another. It's easy to do since each system has costs. People with opposing viewpoints can simply focus on the costs without acknowledging the benefits of the system. For example, fairness and connection might rightly criticize the strive to achieve system for its exploitation of people and resources and its failure to be fully meritocratic. Strive to achieve might fairly reply that the fairness and connection system just wants to take care of everyone without actually figuring out how to pay for that. Strive to achieve might also point the finger in the direction of absolute order for being stodgy and restrictive, holding back progress and not allowing individuals to make a difference. The absolute order system might reply to the strive to achieve system, hey, you just want to break all the rules with no acknowledgement that the rules protect society from unfair or unsafe practices. You get the picture. The battle is almost always focused on criticism of the costs of each system without acknowledging the gifts. To focus the next section on what we can do about this seemingly intractable battle in our organizations, I'm going to pick one key aspect of each of these systems as a shorthand label. Now, each aspect is, of course, not the complete system, but it will help us as we get into the newest mental model that is beginning to emerge. So, from powerful self, we'll just call that power. For stable order, we'll focus on the 
process part of stable order. For Strive to Achieve, we'll focus on profits in a business context. And for fairness and connection, we'll simply label that people. And we'll use these labels throughout the rest of the talk. The polarization we're experiencing in the world is so intractable because it is at its heart a conflict of core values. This gets magnified by traditional and social media who profit from amplifying the messages of a chosen group while vilifying the others. So it's important to remember that each system has benefits from the power focus. The ability to take control in chaotic situations and shake up older systems have helped remove ineffective institutions and protected people from existential threats. The structural and regulatory advances of the process-based model have led to increased safety, stability, and predictability for institutions and individuals alike. The technical and economic advances of the predominant profits-based model have created greater prosperity for a greater percentage of the human population than the world has ever seen. And the advance in human rights from the growing people-based model has created greater acceptance, diversity, and inclusion of all people, regardless of their circumstances, and helped many people lead healthier, more fulfilling lives. And yet, the clash of values has also led to ever-increasing volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity that all of us are struggling to address in our individual and collective roles as leaders. The global pandemic, climate change, modern warfare, and increasing political polarization are all evidence that we're quickly approaching the limit of our current mental models for organizing work. Now again, historically, new mental models have emerged to better meet the needs created by the technical and economic benefits of the existing models and their costs. And in fact, we're seeing early signs of a new model, one that amplifies the benefits of the existing systems while dampening their costs. Let me share one example. Favi is a manufacturing company in rural France that provides brass parts primarily to the automobile industry. In the 1980s, Favi was a mix of process at the worker level and profits at the leadership levels. And there were many levels, in fact, six levels of hierarchy in a 400-person company. So Briest was uncomfortable that the company didn't appear to treat workers as if the company trusted them. He strongly believed that if Favi adopted a more people-centric approach, where the company showed both customers and employees that they cared for them, profit would be the result. Zobrist made many changes over 25 years leading the company. For example, he removed all of the time cards. He removed the locks on the equipment lockers. He removed all the hierarchical levels and replaced them with what he called mini-factory structures, where teams of workers would focus all of their efforts on delighting an external or internal customer. When the economy went through a recession during his time there, he stood up on the factory floor and shared the company's revenue could no longer sustain all of the workers. He explained that he didn't know how to solve it, but he didn't want to lay anyone off. And then he went silent. One senior employee spoke up, saying, hey, I'd be willing to take a few weeks of unpaid vacation if it meant my newest teammate could remain employed. This idea caught on, and as a group, they figured out how to take small pay cuts to keep everyone in their jobs, despite strong union rules against this practice. Zobrist elegantly blended the people and profit systems by appointing co-leaders for every mini-factory. The salesperson, whose job description was, show the customer that we love them, and the team leader, whose job description was, show the employee that Favi loves them. He built out a mini-factory to streamline quality assurance helping to meet the needs of the process system. 
During Zobri's time, he integrated all four of these systems into a single one. The power system by during the economic crisis allowing individuals to break the rules to keep everyone employed. Another example of the power system at play was when one of the mini factories got slightly behind on an order, the salesperson, co-leader of that mini factory, chartered a helicopter to fly the parts to the customer, did not act for permission, just did it. From a process standpoint, Fabi was consistently the first company in their country to meet new ISO standards and never had a late delivery in 25 years. From a profit standpoint, Fabi's mini factory system and focus on delighting the customer led to 20% profit margins, unheard of in that industry and region. And from a people standpoint, Fabi's focus on their people led to almost non-existent turnover and extremely high engagement. In fact, Zobris had a practice of turning in a letter of resignation every five years, and the employees unanimously rejected it each time until he finally retired. Zobrist gives us one example of this evolving fifth viewpoint, what we'll call the purpose system, in which individual leaders effectively integrate the other four systems. There are two key moves to make this work. The first is to build the shared purpose that all sides can get behind. What is the goal that can align all of us in our systems? The second and sometimes more difficult move is to work to amplify the benefits of each system and dampen the downsides. Zobris took decades to remodel Favi, one small experiment at a time. He did it all under an underlying purpose to provide meaningful employment to his community in rural France. And when he amplified the benefits of each system, he had a powerful new tool to address the complexity and uncertainty of the day. Favi became resilient and employees, shareholders, and customers all benefited. Like Zobrist, none of us will change our organizations overnight. Instead, humanizing work involves making small, meaningful changes in our own behavior as leaders under a unifying, meaningful purpose. What purpose might help align the conflicting viewpoints in your organization and its key stakeholders? How might you clearly communicate that purpose? What behaviors, structures, and policies in your current organization conflict with that unifying purpose? How might you involve all of the wonderfully diverse people in your organization in testing small changes to more fully align behind that purpose, to amplify the benefits of each of the viewpoints, and to dampen the costs? This evolving fifth model, the purpose model, effectively addresses the challenges of the existing polarity in the other models. It integrates the benefits of each of the models to empower people, deliver better business results, and to solve the pressing challenges of our day and into the future. I've always found the Lalu model and the spiral models that it inherits from rather slippery. I use a variety of mental models in my life and work, and I think I feel pretty comfortable picking one up quickly, using it, shifting from one to another to find what's useful in a particular situation. But it seems like no matter how many times I read books or articles or watch your very clear video, I can't make it stick in my mind. And maybe it's the abstractness of the colors and the fact that there are two kind of conflicting color schemes. But even when we've tried to put names on the colors, and you've been very patient with me on this, it doesn't stick in my brain. So it always feels like I'm looking at the model rather than through it. That said, I think that core idea that different people have different core values and that it's useful to understand those values and use language that corresponds to those values, I, I think that's a strong idea. And so I still use that, but 
I don't get the same chunking of those values and language that you get as you use this model. Yeah, for me, it's interesting because those chunks have been really useful to me, not only at work, but in my personal life. When I'm looking at politicians and how they communicate and you know, what values they're trying to communicate to, it's really helpful for me to say, oh, I see some real red coming through there, right? The power model or, or wow, there's a real adherence to one right way and stable structure and following the rules. Or I was just reading a comment yesterday that was clearly coming from like, it's all about the individual achievement. All this other stuff is just not the right way to think about it. And, and so the conflicts between those kind of core value sets has always been really useful to me. And I can understand why that's not useful for everybody. And I suspect that for you, Richard, you have uh, different ways of chunking value sets, or maybe your way of digging into that is a more individual approach. It's not about a category of values that you see people falling into, but it's like, oh, this individual is more nuanced than that. And I think that that's really useful. It's actually one of the, I think, risks of the LALU model and the spiral models that preceded it is that people can try and diagnose and say, oh, that person is fill in the color or fill in the value set. And then that, for us, in, in our own brains, can define them rather than describe one aspect of them. So I, I appreciate that the chunks may not always be useful. I just have found that the conflicts between them I see showing up all around me. And specifically, I see it showing up in organizations. A lot of organizations really are motivated by uh, grow, 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 grow at all costs and innovate, innovate, innovate. And I can see how the other value sets provide a nice balance for some of those things that can get out of balance in organizations. So for me, the fifth evolution that I describe in the video, what Lalu originally referred to as teal, is really an attempt to balance values and to focus on the benefits of those different sets of values. That said, I gave up a long time trying to convince you <laughs> <laughs> that this was a thing that we should focus more on, which is, I think, totally fine. The fact that two people can differ, I think, is fantastic. And we probably bring different things to any given coaching mm -hmm. conversation or consulting engagement because you have like your logic and depth in like the theory of constraints thinking tools is much deeper than mine. And so I know when I'm having a conversation, oh, Richard would see this through this lens. And I don't know that model as well. So I'm going to kind of tag you say, hey, Richard, how would how would a gold rat approach help here? And I think sometimes there's probably that too, like. Peter, is there some usefulness over here? Or I don't know if that comes to mind for you, but I think it's helpful to have that diversity right. in our perspectives on things. For sure. And I think you're, you're getting at something there with how a model like this can unfortunately be used in a way that categorizes people and invites confirmation bias. Like now I only mm. see the things that correspond to that. And I appreciate that you don't use it that way. You use it as, let me try speaking a different language and see if that allows us to connect better. But you're still interacting with another person as an individual person. And the, mm -hmm. the chunking for you seems to be more of, let me try bringing myself into your world more rather mm -hmm. than standing outside and, and judging your world and your values and 
And I think that's a strength I see in how you wield this model. And I don't see that with many other people who are fired up about it. Mm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of one other way that uh, I have found the model real useful that we haven't talked about yet, which is when I'm speaking to a large group, I can't anticipate ahead of time what's going to be the predominant model. In fact, even for this keynote that I'm going to deliver, I have no idea what the values are going to be in that room in that moment. And so one of the tools that Don Beck describes is what he calls multicasting, where you consider how different audiences might hear what you're saying and react to it, either in positive or negative ways, and you attempt to balance the message a little bit. Is there something in my message for people that value this? Is there something for people that value that? And that considering how we speak to large groups has been another really useful way to use the model for me. And that is one that I've picked up from you. Even if I can't get the colors, I think about those different things and how to convey a message in a way that can land with a wider range of perspectives. If you enjoyed this episode and want more content like this, the best thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcasting platform. We'd love it if you shared the podcast with friends, family, and coworkers that you think might benefit from learning more about how to make work more fit for humans and humans more capable of doing great work. If you want help humanizing your work, you can find out about our products and services at humanizingwork.com. We spend much of our lives working, so let's make that investment meaningful for us and all of the people connected to it.